0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. It's good to see you, my friends. Uh, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, and today we'll be in chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 17 to 34. So I invite you to turn there. Uh, So as we've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to a church at Corinth, it'd be like somebody writing a letter to a church in Kingwood. there's just things that are going on in Kingwood and somebody speaking to that reality, trying to speak some truth into people's lives for their good. That's what Paul was trying to do. This church, I mean, they were really diverse. I mean, when you went into Corinth, because it was a port, you had people literally coming in from all around the world. You had people that were pagans, and I mean in the real meaning of the word pagan. You had people that were were Jews. Uh, There were racial differences. There were financial differences. It was a real hodgepodge of a place, Corinth was. Um, There's always gonna be diversity in the church, and I think that's a good thing. Sometimes the diversity is age, and if you were to look around here this morning, you would see diversity of age. I think that's a good thing. You'll see diversity in backgrounds, I'm from Mineola, Texas, for goodness sakes. Many of you don't even know where that's at, but you kind of got to go to Tyler and then keep going north, and you'd run into it, right? Um, But most of you are not from Mineola, Texas. Uh, Class, there are class differences in this building this morning. There are racial differences in the building this morning. That's good. Uh, There are diversity in our preferences. Uh, There are denominational differences, and I can actually prove that. Uh, How many of you grew up Baptist, your whole life. Can I see your hands? Okay, there's some. How about those that didn't? Can I see your hands? Isn't that interesting? There's some differences for you. Even how we take communion, we're gonna be taking communion today. And I was thinking about one trip when I was in Budapest and I went to a church called Golgotha and they opened up communion. It was just up at the front like this. Uh, But the pastor gets up and he says, you know, as your heart is prepared for what you're going to receive in communion, you can come. Well, they meant any time during the worship service, you can come. And so what they did was music was going and you'd see people come down and taking communion and going back to their seat. The pastor was preaching and people were coming down and taking communion and going back to their seat. I'll admit, I had never seen anything like that before. And I thought it was pretty cool. That was just a cultural difference. Jesus' vision for his church was not uniformity and everything cultural, but unity in him. That was his vision for his church. And it outweighs any kind of distinction on secondary things, or at least it should. For the Corinthians, the one place that should have most displayed their unity was when they came together at the Lord's table. Should have been it. But what was happening in their church is it only highlighted their divisions, If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22, here's what Paul says. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. By the way, they were coming together. But notice he's giving them a rebuke for how they were coming together. He says, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another is getting drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He goes, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? He goes, well, I don't praise you in this matter. Well, that's the way he starts, (laughs) lighthearted and just making sure everybody's happy. I don't think he really cares. I want to give you a bit of background on why he's having to say this to the church. You need to remember in the early days of the church, there were no church buildings. They didn't exist. So typically what they would do is they would gather in homes and it was usually in the home of a wealthy person. Now that kind of makes sense because their homes would have been big enough to host everybody that was coming in. So every Sunday, what they would do is they would come into a home, like I said, usually of a wealthy person, they would share a meal together, they would actually eat together, and then they would do church in that home. And as a part of that gathering in the home, after they had eaten and after they had sung songs together, after they had opened the Word together, then they would take communion together. Well, here's what was happening. This is what Paul's speaking about. The the rich people, well, they kind of all knew each other. And honestly, most of them didn't have to work on Sundays because they were rich. Now, the others, which weren't as well off, were typically having to work. I mean, they had to, as we would say, they had to make ends meet. And so they were out in the fields or they were out doing their trade or whatever it is that they were doing. And then they would come in from that into a home of a wealthy person. Are you with me so far? Well, the wealthy folks had already been at it. They'd already been in the home together, they'd already been eating together, and apparently they'd already been drinking enough wine together that they were getting drunk, because Paul just talked about that, right? So you have the workers that are coming in from the field, they haven't eaten anything, they haven't had anything to drink, but the rich people have already been at it. So the food is basically gone, and the hungry people have just walked in. And Paul is sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. This is is what you've turned the worship of, of me into? It's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be that one group is over here starving while the other group is over here filled up and not just with food but with wine as well. And so now what you've got is you've got all of this bitterness between the two groups. You have resentment that's growing in the church. You have people literally not caring for other people but caring for themselves. The poor don't like the rich and the rich apparently don't like the poor. And then they get together in the home, they open the word, they sing together, and then it's time to take the table. But notice what you have here. You've got broken relationships, but they're still taking the table. And Paul's saying, I think I wanna offer you a correction here. I mean, you can tell from verse 22 how upset Paul is. Basically, it's like he's saying, I have no words for you today. He's that, when you grew up, Did your parents, when they ever got on to you, did they ever get so mad at you they couldn't finish a sentence? I know my dad did that more than once to my older brothers, not me. I know he did that more than once and he would start his sentence and he was so mad, he'd like get tripped up on his words and I'm like, we are about to get torn up. That's what Paul's doing right here. He is so upset, he's basically saying, I don't even have words for what you're doing to the church. So this was a necessary correction. Here's what he goes on to say in verse 23. He says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. It doesn't say how often they did. It said as often as you drink it and do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner or maybe your translation says unworthily will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. Many have fallen asleep, which is a figure of speech for they've died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned by the world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Well, there's a lot there, and I want to begin at the end, and I'll work my way back to the beginning, but notice how he started this, or notice how he says this at the end. He says, I want you to examine yourselves. You saw this in verse 28, let a person examine himself. When you're taking a test, what it is is that you're looking deep in so that you can see what is actually there, right? You can see what it is that you know. Students are well aware of this when they take a test. They're digging deep in so that they can discover what's actually there. And Paul is saying, I want you to stop long enough that you can dig deep into yourself so that you can see what's actually there. Examine yourself. The reason, he gave in verses 27 to 30, for whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And that's why many of you are sick and ill and even dead. That word unworthily, let let me just be really clear on what he's saying and what he isn't saying here. It doesn't mean wait until you think you are worthy of Christ. You will never take it, and neither will I. It doesn't mean that. In fact, we take the bread and the cup because we need it, not because we're worthy of it. I received Christ because I needed him, not because I was worthy of him. Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar. Here's one for the English teachers out there. He said, Paul uses an adverb not an adjective unworthily he's not trying to attack who you are instead he's talking about how you approach the table you approach it unworthily let me give you a couple of examples here just to make it a little bit clearer here's a way to approach the table in a worthy way if you know you aren't worthy of God's kindness and grace you're approaching the table in the right way I don't deserve this let me give you an example of unworthily approaching the table If you're approaching the table when you are knowingly living in a way that is contrary to God's will for you, and you refuse to submit to his correction in your life, you're approaching the table unworthily. Notice what it it doesn't mean if you have sin in your life, or if you're struggling with sin in your life, don't come to the table. Nobody would come to the table, myself included. It's talking about the attitude of how we approach the table as we bring ourselves to the table. Here's another thing that it does mean. And I like the way that J.D. Greer said it. He said, we don't need to hypocritically say, thank you, Jesus, for your death while stubbornly doing the very things that put him on the cross. Don't approach the table like that. Here's another way of looking at it. What were the Corinthians dealing with? The Corinthians were dealing with divisions among themselves. Now, theirs was mainly class. You talk about the kind of the rich and the poor. That's what was going on for them. There was a wealth gap. But what about us? What is it that would cause divisions among ourselves? Sometimes we don't get our way, and we act like we're about three years old, and we're willing to break relationships with people because our personal desires weren't met, as if that's why people exist, is to meet our personal desires. And it causes fractions and breaking up in the church. That would be an example. Here's another example. Walking around with an unforgiving spirit. But here, let's approach the table where Christ has forgiven me of everything. That's unworthily approaching the table. After all, it's hard to magnify the grace and the forgiveness of God when we don't show grace and forgiveness to other people. People will fail you. We still are supposed to respond as Christ responded to us. That's how we approach the table. Jesus even gave us this in Matthew 5. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Or as Romans 12, 18 says, insofar as it's up to you, be at peace with everyone. Again, you don't have control over how people are gonna react to you, but you do have control over how you're going to react to them. Do you have an unforgiving spirit? If so, that's unworthily approaching the table. It doesn't even kind of fit the story of grace on how we come to the table. And he even gives this warning. He said, many are sick and ill among you, many have died. He didn't say all, but apparently some. I'll be honest with you, as I was reading over this course of the week, I thought, I don't even know how that works. But what it does seem to be is an act of judgment of God because he takes what he did on our behalf so seriously. It's not something to be toyed with, or to be tinkered with. People have gotten sick. Again, not always, but sometimes. I was giving some thought on why God might do something like that. Why would you see, why would you see in this passage what would be an act of divine judgment on his church? Not on unbelievers, on his church. And I think the answer is sometimes God judges people to protect his church from an ongoing mess. He just gets to a point where he says, that's it, that's enough, because what you're doing is literally destroying my place. And so I'm gonna bring an end to it. I was talking with some pastors, this was some years ago, and they were telling me of a story of, uh, of a church. And the pastor of the church, turns out, had had a couple of affairs with women in the church. That's not good, right? That's not good, right? All right, thank you. You have to make sure you're still there. So he had had affairs with a couple of women in the church. So here's what he decided to do, because obviously he wasn't gonna be staying on staff at that church, and he shouldn't, he shouldn't. But what he decided to do was he decided to go and start recruiting the members of that church so that he could start another church about a mile down the road. Okay, all right, we even got a boo in that case. All right, the uh, participation part of the service is over. (laughs) I know you're wondering what happened. So for a couple of months, he was busy recruiting people to go over, leave this church and to go over to this other church to find within about three months or so, if I remember the story right, that he had a terminal form of cancer and was dead within another month. Now, here's here's why I bring this up, because this is the conversation that I was having with my friends, which I literally said, I didn't even boo him like you did. Um, They genuinely believed that God was judging him. They genuinely believed it. And why? Because not only had he destroyed one church, he was actively in the process of trying to destroy it more so that his own kingdom could be built. That's the way they looked at it. And there does come a time, again, notice in here, Paul doesn't say everybody got sick and died. Some did. And God is the one that made that judgment to say that however far down the road they had gotten in this, he says, that's enough. That's enough. That's the hard part of this passage. Can I tell you the good part? Can I tell you the good part? Here it is. When you come to the table, communion speaks a message. Communion speaks a message. Did you notice this is my body which is broken for you? Or I encourage you to say it with me. This is his body which is broken for me. It's for you. So if you're here and you are, then this is for you. Adulterers, addicts, liars, the arrogant, the gossipers, the vindictive people, the hateful people, this is for you. His grace is for you. I could go on, but I thought that was enough. His grace is for you. In Romans 10, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did you catch the word? Whoever. Whoever. Many respond like Adam and Eve. They sin, and then they're ashamed, and then they're afraid, and then they hide. But Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls on his name will not be ashamed. Whoever. So communion is a reminder this morning of why we came to Jesus to begin with, why I came to Jesus to begin with, why we keep coming to Jesus. I'm still a sinner, so are you. And why we want others to come to Jesus because everybody needs him. Everybody needs grace. Everybody needs forgiveness. Communion speaks that message. And communion reminds us that as we approach the table, we are a group of forgiven people. It speaks that message. And it speaks this, whoever, that means there is room at the table for you. There is always a chair at the table for you. It communicates that. It also communicates this, and you see it in verse 26. It says, you proclaim, as you take the table, you proclaim his death until he returns. And here's what this means, until he returns. He's coming back, until he returns. And here's, here's what that tells us. That tells us that there's an end to all of this mess. There's an end to all of the mess. Now, think about this. Just in the last couple of weeks, we saw a hurricane demolish Puerto Rico and then go and hit the Dominican Republic. Ukraine and Russia, they're still at war. In Pakistan, just about a month ago, you saw unprecedented flooding. 1,500 people were dead. Over 30 million people were displaced. I think they said at one point, a third of the country was underwater. 3.4 million children right now are still needing life-saving support. What this table tells us is there is a day that that stops. It stops. N.T. Wright wrote a book called Simply Christian, and in it he said, we dream the dream of justice. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a, a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently, where we, know, we not only know what we ought to do, but we actually do it. And then we wake up and we come back to reality. But what are we hearing when we're dreaming that dream? It's as though we can hear not perhaps a voice itself, but the echo of a voice. A voice speaking with calm, healing authority, speaking about justice, about things being put to rights, about peace and hope and prosperity. The voice continues to echo in our imagination, in our subconscious, but the voice goes on calling us, beckoning us, luring us to think that there might be such a thing as justice and the world being put to rights, even though we find it so elusive. And he's right. And communion communicates that. This table reminds you that Jesus will return and he will put this back together. It reminds you of that. To the sick, you're not always going to be sick. To the poor, you're not only going to be poor. For those that deal with depression and anxiety and sadness and just general brokenness, you will find healing in your soul. It is there. He will put it back together. I'm a big fan of uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was friends with C.S. Lewis. I don't know how many of you have read The Return of the King. What have you been waiting for? (laughs) After the battle over the ring of power... There was a hobbit named Samwise Gamgee. He's recovering in a friend's home. And the last that he knew, Gandalf, who was the wizard, the last that he knew in the battle, Gandalf had fallen into an abyss and had died. And Gandalf is one of the great heroes of the trilogy, you know? We lost a big one there. So Samwise is in the home. And he's trying to recover, and then he hears a voice. And the voice says, Master Samwise, how do you feel? And it was Gandalf. And this is what Tolkien says. Samwise looks and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Here's the line. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf said, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. But he finally heard it. The table reminds us that there's a coming day where all of the brokenness of the world stops and he puts it back to rights. And that's something that we celebrate as we come to the table. But we're also reminded, at the table, there is no room for bragging. We gotta put that down. Instead, it's a gathering of forgiven people. You should be thrilled when you see somebody coming to the table, because they, just like you, they needed the forgiveness of God. I mean, after all, the Lord's Supper was fashioned at the Passover meal. In the Passover, the Jews reflected on the fact that they were slaves until God had delivered them. And moreover, when in Egypt, there weren't classes of people, they're all a bunch of slaves, didn't exist. There were people that needed to be freed. We are all people that need to be freed too. Communion expresses that message. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, when we grasp that we are unworthy sinners saved at an infinitely costly grace, It destroys both our self-righteousness and our need to ridicule others. It stops, and we welcome each other. Let me ask you a question. Let's imagine for a second that you had committed a crime. Hard to believe, but whatever. Let's say that you had committed a crime. Are you with me? And let's imagine that the president of the United States offers you a pardon for that crime. You're free from it. How many of you are gonna take the pardon? Can I see your hands? Okay. I wanna tell you a story, it comes from the Smithsonian. In 1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier. Both were subsequently captured and tried in a court of law. In May of 1830, both men were found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the mail and, quote, putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences, execution by hanging, to be carried out on July 2nd. Porter was executed on schedule, but Wilson was not. Influential friends had pleaded for mercy to the President of the United States, who at that time was Andrew Jackson, and they had pleaded on his behalf. President Jackson issued a formal pardon and he dropped all charges. Wilson would only have to serve a prison term of 20 years for other crimes, but he was pardoned for this. And incredibly, George Wilson refused the pardon. He didn't take it. An official report stated Wilson chose to, quote, waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. Wilson also stated he had nothing to say and he didn't wish any manner to avail himself in order to avoid the sentence. So it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is a lot of drama, isn't it? And here's what they said. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It's a grant to him. It is his property. And he may accept it or not as he pleases. So Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this. He said, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. Did you hear that? Delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. I want to remind you of something. Christ's forgiveness, and you see him hanging on the cross, and he says, forgive them, Father. That was a statement. That was the offer of the pardon. Our only part in this is whether or not we'll receive it and be delivered from what we deserve. That is our only part in this. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it reads this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How many? Everyone. Or as Paul said before, whoever. Whoever. This is for you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.